All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. All right, so um, Faye, you know, a long time ago on the show, we talked about pelvic inflammatory disease and tubo ovarian abscess. Um, and things have actually changed since we last talked about that. Yeah, so we're going to have a brand new episode on updates in PID. Um, and so today's learning objectives, we are going to learn the diagnosis criteria of pelvic inflammatory disease and tubo ovarian abscesses. We're going to learn how to treat PID both medically and know when surgical intervention is required. And then we're going to understand the other complicating factors for PID and TOA. Um, so some of the new updates that you may want to follow along with are in that 2021 CDC treatment guideline. And we'll post that link on our website. So Nick, let's just start off with the basic question, which is what is PID and TOA? Yeah, so fortunately, this has not changed since our last episode, Faye. Um, PID still is pelvic inflammatory disease. So just as a reminder, this is a wide variety of inflammatory disorders of the upper female genital tract. So this encompasses things like endometritis, salpingitis, TOA or tubo-ovarian abscess, and pelvic peritonitis. Um, it's predominantly infectious in how it's caused, and as you may already know, the most common reasons for PID um, are two bacteria, Neisseria gonorrhea and Chlamydia trachomatis. Probably mispronounced those, but you know them as gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, and kind of underscoring the burden or the importance of these two bacteria are that 50% of PID diagnoses will test positive for one of these two at least. Um, overall, this proportion is decreasing though, and there are a number of other organisms that can be implicated in PID, um, including various anaerobes, Gardnerella vaginalis, Haemophilus influenzae, certain enteric gram-negative rods, strep agalacticae, um, maybe surprisingly things like cytomegalovirus and trichomonas. Um, and then there's also some of those mycoplasma 
Mycoplasmas, Mycoplasma hominis, Mycoplasma genitalium, and Ureaplasma ureolyticum. So really there's a wide, wide variety of things that lead into PID and TOA, um, but obviously again with chlamydia and gonorrhea kind of leading the way there. Um, when we think about PID, Faye, we kind of get a vision of a patient in our mind, but how exactly do we diagnose PID? Yeah, so the diagnosis of PID can actually be pretty difficult because of the many vague symptoms that can be had and because some patients may even be asymptomatic. And so we should still keep a broad differential for um, abdominal abdominal pain and pelvic pain. And this includes things like appendicitis, ectopic pregnancy, ovarian torsion, ovarian cysts, diverticulitis, and then other things like functional GI pain, like IBS or inflammatory bowel disease, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, Nick, a presumptive diagnosis should be made and treatment started in sexually active women and those at risk for sexually transmitted infections if they experience pelvic or lower abdominal pain and if no other cause for illness can be identified and if they have one or more of these minimum clinical criteria, which include uh, cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, and adnexal tenderness. And then one or more of the following can also be used to enhance the specificity of the minimal criteria. And these include things like an oral temperature of greater than 101 or 38.3 degrees Celsius, uh, abnormal cervical mucopurulent discharge or friability, presence of abundant white blood cells on saline microscopy of the vaginal fluid, elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or ESR, and an elevated CRP. Um, also, there sh can be laboratory documentation of cervical infection with gonorrhea or chlamydia. And then if we wanted to get even more specific, um, you can do an endometrial biopsy that shows histopathological evidence of endometritis and a transvaginal ultrasound or an MRI that shows thickened fluid-filled tubes with or without free fluid or tubo-ovarian complex. And then also laparoscopic findings of PID like Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, which is those like filmy adhesions up by the liver. Um, but as you add more criteria, of course, while we can get more specific, our testing or our basically our diagnosis is going to be less sensitive. So knowing that, Nick, you know, what should I do if I think someone has PID? Yeah. So why don't we start out with just basics? You mentioned testing, Faye, and certainly, um, you know, we talked a bit about some of those clinical criteria and then the evolution of specific criteria. But from the CDC, um, the important things to remember are HIV testing and gonorrhea chlamydia testing. You may or may not know this, but HIV testing is recommended by the CDC in all persons who are seeking STI testing who don't have a known diagnosis of HIV. Um, so really, anytime somebody's coming to you for sexually transmitted infection screening, HIV testing should be offered. Gonorrhea and chlamydia, again, have high yield with concern for PID. So again, 50% of patients are going to test positive um, if they have PID. So you should get them. Um, important to recognize is that nucleic acid amplification testing remains the preferred method, um, and particularly with pelvic swabs. 
One thing to note is that patient self-collected swabs are just as accurate as clinician collected. Um, and then also importantly, a first void urine, if you're doing urine testing, is the most sensitive. And the sensitivity vastly decreases with later voids during the day. Urine testing actually just written up in JAMA recently may miss over 400,000 infections of gonorrhea chlamydia per year in the United States. Um, so there's been this push to say that vaginal swab testing should really be the first offering so we don't miss these infections. Um, and patient collection swabs, again, are acceptable and just as accurate as clinician collected. So patient collected swabs may help improve the acceptability of swab testing. Now, with imaging is sort of the last thing to think about in your testing, this is not recommended by the CDC outright in the evaluation of PID. But again, given the broad differential diagnosis associated with abdominal pelvic pain, imaging is frequently going to be part of your evaluation. So the things that we often think about in gynecology, again, are going to be transvaginal ultrasound, um, particularly because of good imaging of those pelvic organs. Again, you could see a TOA with ultrasound, um, could also demonstrate other GYN pathologies. Um, and then also, you know, with a transvaginal ultrasound, you're definitely going to elicit cervical motion tenderness if it's there. With CT and MRI as kind of other imaging that might be encountered, um, these really don't demonstrate that specific of findings for PID outside of large TOAs. So again, these are not necessarily going to rule out PID. They may not be all that useful, but they can help with other concerns, for instance, like appendicitis. Faye, let's talk next about treatment considerations. Sure. So we'll first talk about, in terms of treatment, the primary consideration. So we'll talk about, you know, choice of medication and then also when to hospitalize someone. So first of all, the choice of medication, treatment should be empiric, meaning that we should treat with a broad spectrum coverage of any likely pathogens. And all treatment types should be effective against gonorrhea and chlamydia because those are so common. And then the patients that need to be hospitalized are those that have a surgical emergency um, that cannot be excluded. So for example, if you think they could have an appendicitis, if there's a presence of tuba ovarian abscess, um, if they're pregnant, if they have severe illness, including nausea, vomiting, or high fever, inability to tolerate or follow outpatient regimen, and or they failed the outpatient therapy based off follow-up. In terms of the types of treatment, um, parenteral treatment or IV treatment include a few typical things, and we won't go into all of these, but we'll definitely post them. So our first-line treatment can include ceftriaxone, doxycycline, and metronidazole, but it could also include cefoxetin and doxycycline, which I'm sure that a lot of you guys have heard as kind of the cutesy term cefoxydoxy, right? Um, otherwise, you can use cefotetan and doxycycline. Um, because of the pain associated with IV infusion, doxycycline should be given orally whenever possible. But of course, as we're thinking, you know, if someone has to be admitted to the hospital because they can't tolerate the oral regimen, then you would give it. IV. Um, and then oral and IV doxycycline and metronidazole have similar bioavailability. So again, if you're able to give that patient oral metronidazole, you can always try that as well. Alternative regimens exist for those patients who have allergies to penicillin, for example, or to um, cephalosporins. And so this can include things like clindamycin and gentamicin. Um, so gentamicin is usually a 2 mg per kg loading dose and then maintenance of 1.5 mg per kg every 8 hours or a single daily dose of 3 to 5 mg per kg. 
Um, for those that can't tolerate that, you can also consider um, unison, which is ampicillin and sulbactam, and doxycycline. Overall, the goal of parenteral therapy will be to transition at some point to oral antibiotics, usually within 24 to 48 hours if there's clinical improvement. And those with the TOA should have at least 24 hours of inpatient observation. All right, so we've talked about the parenteral treatments, Nick, which is usually reserved for patients who need some type of inpatient management. But what about patients who could potentially be treated outpatient? Like, can we give them a shot of something and send them home on an oral regimen? Absolutely. Um, And really, this is preferred, if at all possible. Um, So ultimately, as you said, Faye, you're going to continue inpatient treatment as an outpatient, or in those with mild to moderate symptoms of acute PID, you could start with just um, oral and intramuscular treatment. The clinical outcomes of this treatment are similar overall to those treated with IV therapy outright. Um, but if patients don't respond within 72 hours, they need to be reevaluated and treated with IV therapy. So again, this is that follow-up indication for hospitalization is if you don't see improvement in 72 hours, you need to kind of rethink what you're doing and bring them in to be evaluated. The outpatient regimen is ceftriaxone 500 milligrams intramuscularly times one, along with doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily for 14 days, and metronidazole 500 milligrams twice daily for 14 days. Um, This reflects the change in the guidelines surrounding treatment for gonorrhea specifically, where the dose of ceftriaxone has increased from 250 to 500 milligrams in outpatient. Um, You can also use alternatively cefoxetin as a 2-gram dose IM alongside probenicid 1-gram orally, and both of those again are times 1, with the aforementioned doxycycline and metronidazole for 14 days. If you don't have ceftriaxone or cefoxetin, it's appropriate to use other third-generation cephalosporins that can be given intramuscularly along with doxycycline and metronidazole. Again, as I mentioned before, if you're starting with outpatient treatment, you need to improve within 72 hours. So all of these patients should have three-day follow-up with hospitalization, assessment of the antimicrobial regimen, and considering additional diagnostics, for instance, imaging or laparoscopy, um, to kind of round out the thoughts in your differential diagnosis. In anybody who tests positive for PID or is treated for PID, retesting for gonorrhea and chlamydia should occur at three months after treatment, regardless of the treatment of sex partners, um, and this is to reassess for reinfection. Patients need to refrain from sex until after their treatment is completed, their symptoms have resolved, and also their sex partners have been treated. And sex partners, per this definition of the CDC, is anybody who has had sex with a patient within the previous 60 days. Those patients, again, need to be treated presumptively for gonorrhea and chlamydia, regardless of the PID etiology or the pathogens that were isolated. And this is an appropriate time point to consider expedited partner therapy, um, or EPT, as we've talked about on the show before. So, Faye, to round out today, we should talk about some special considerations, namely um, TOAs and then a couple of special populations. Sure. So in terms of managing TOAs, a lot of these patients can be treated medically. So it doesn't mean automatically if you see a tubo ovarian abscess that they need to go to the operating room. However, surgical drainage is indicated if there is failure to respond to treatment within 48 to 72 hours 
or if there is some type of clinical decline. So the patient is starting to become septic, even though you're treating them with the appropriate antibiotics. And the likelihood of need for surgical intervention is actually related to the size of the TOA. So 60% of those with a tubo ovarian abscess greater than 10 centimeters are going to need some type of surgical intervention, whereas 30% will in those with a 7 to 9 centimeter TOA and only 15% in those who have a 4 to 6 centimeter TOA. In terms of special considerations in certain populations, these include for example, pregnant people. And pregnant patients with PID are at a high risk of morbidity, pregnancy loss, preterm delivery. So hospitalization and consultation with ID are recommended. And of course, these patients are not patients where you want to give doxycycline to, so you will have to think of alternative regimens. Also, persons with HIV are more likely to have tubo ovarian abscesses, although symptoms are similar overall to those without HIV. And there's no data currently to suggest more aggressive therapy is needed in patients with HIV. And then lastly, if the patient has an IUD, actually the IUD is not required to be removed with the diagnosis of PID. I feel like, you know, a lot of times you're thinking, oh, if there's an infection, we should just remove whatever implant is in there. But if there's no clinical improvement in 48 to 72 hours, then we should consider removing that IUD. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? Absolutely. So we started talking about what PID actually is pelvic inflammatory disease, a umbrella term that encompasses inflammatory disorders of the upper female genital tract, endometritis, salpingitis, TOA, or tubo ovarian abscess, and pelvic peritonitis. Gonorrhea and chlamydia are the causative organs in 50% of PID, though this proportion is overall decreasing, and there are a variety of other organisms that can be implicated in PID. PID can be difficult to diagnose because there are very vague symptoms. And remember, for anyone coming in with pelvic or abdominal pain to keep that differential broad because they could have a variety of different things. PID should be diagnosed in treatment should be started in patients who are sexually active and at risk for STIs if they have pelvic lower abdominal pain and one or more of the minimal clinical criteria, which includes cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. We can add on other findings to that to be more specific. So that includes things like temperature, you know, cervical discharge, etc. And you can add even more specific criteria with things like endometrial biopsy and imaging. If you think somebody has PID, the number one thing to do is testing. Again, 50% of patients will test positive for gonorrhea chlamydia, so those are high-yield tests to do. Patient self-collected pelvic swabs are just as accurate as clinician-educated, and urine tests may miss over 400,000 infections per year in the United States. So really, vaginal swab testing should be offered first. You should also offer HIV testing in any person who's seeking sexually transmitted infection testing who are not previously diagnosed with HIV. In terms of treatment, we want to select antibiotics that would treat a broad spectrum of pathogens as well as something that covers gonorrhea and chlamydia. However, for certain patients, they may need to be hospitalized, specifically if they have a tubo ovarian abscess, they're pregnant, they have severe illness, they can't tolerate the PO medications, or they failed outpatient treatment. There are a variety of IV treatments that we can use, um, and we will be posting some of these on our website.
If the patient has mild to moderate symptoms, they would be a candidate for outpatient treatment. Again, we'll post the eligible regimens on our website. Um, but just to remember, if you're starting somebody with outpatient treatment, they need to be followed up within 72 hours. And if no improvements occurred, hospitalization and reassessment are indicated. Retesting should occur at three months post-treatment um, for all patients who have PID, and sex partners should be treated for gonorrhea and chlamydia presumptively if they've had sex with the patient in the past 60 days. While not everyone who has a TOA is going to need surgical drainage, this should be considered in patients who are failing to respond to treatment within 48 to 72 hours or those who have clinical decline. Remember that the size of the TOA actually can be more likely associated with the need for surgical intervention, specifically for those that are greater than 10 centimeters. There are certain special populations to consider in terms of treatment, and those include patients who are pregnant, patients with HIV, and patients with an IUD. All right. I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee, send us some love, and we'll send you some swag. For show notes for this show, especially all of those IV and IM and oral treatment antibiotic regimens, go ahead and go onto our website, where you'll also find the Rosh Review Question of the Week. That's at www.creogsovercoffee.com. And then finally, if you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes, have a question or a suggestion for us, or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.